And just for a bit of context, uh, so far in this letter, the first letter of the Apostle Peter, um, he has been describing to the scattered Christians that he's writing to, uh, he's been describing who they are. He's been telling them about their identity. And in the seven verses we're looking at tonight, we're uh, seeing the end, the culmination of that description that Peter began in chapter 1. Once again, the passage is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. This is God's holy word. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray. Almighty God, without you we can do nothing, so we pray that you would illumine today your sacred word by your Holy Spirit, that our minds may be open to receive it, our hearts taught to love it, and our wills strengthened to obey it. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. <clears throat> well, you can be anything you want to be. This is the message that I was taught growing up in school and through many other sources, television shows and things like that. Kids, I don't know if this is still what, what you hear a lot at school, uh, you can be anything you want to be, which sounds like good news, but sometimes it can have sort of this, this darker side to it, which is that the responsibility is then placed on us to construct our own identities. We grow up thinking it's our job to, to build who we are, and this is why identity concerns are so common in our culture. People are having questions about who they are what they're supposed to do, how do they fit in, because the identity they've constructed for themselves is rootless and shaky and constantly changing. But in our passage today, Peter is assuring us of our identity as Christians. He's reminding his audience of their deeply rooted and stable and never-changing identity that they have in Christ. And so as we look at these seven verses, we'll see that because we have been made a part of God's people and priesthood, we must offer our words and works to him as spiritual sacrifices. So turning first to verses four and five, we see here that you and I are being built into a house for the purpose of offering up sacrifices to God. Peter says, as you come to him, a living stone, so as you approach the Lord in faith, but where are we coming? A living stone is obviously a contradiction. I don't know how many stones that you've picked up and held in your hands, but I'm sure that none of them spoke to you 
or, or moved on you. There's no living stones, but what Peter's doing here is modifying the imagery in passages like Isaiah 28 and Psalm 118 according to the resurrection. Jesus is the stone, and he's alive. He's, he did not remain in the grave. He's been raised back to life. So Christ is the one we come to in faith. But this hasn't been the only reaction to the living stone. Christians come to him in faith, but others have rejected him. Peter says he's been rejected by men. And so we can picture here a building site, a, a construction project going on. The contractor is humankind. And as this contractor is cataloging all the supplies that he has before him for this project, he comes across this one stone in particular. The stone is Christ. But the contractor decides it's not a suitable material for his project, and he casts it aside as useless, rejecting the living stone. But Peter says there's also another building project going on, because on the one hand, yes, the living stone has been rejected by men, but on the other hand, he's chosen and precious in God's sight. So what was tossed aside as useless to sinners is chosen and precious to God. So Peter highlights these two ways that Jesus has been regarded, rejected by people, chosen by God. Next, looking at verse 5, he says that as you come to this precious living stone, you yourselves are being built up as a spiritual house. Now, this house is not a family or, or the building where a family lives. Peter's talking about the temple here. The Jerusalem temple was frequently referred to as a house, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. But this temple is, is not like the Jerusalem temple in, in certain ways. It's a spiritual house. It is brought to life, held together by the Holy Spirit of God. And what role do you and I play in this new spiritual house? Peter says that we are living stones. Because of our faith in Christ, who is the living stone, we also become living stones as we're connected to him, like appliances plugged into a power grid. We share in the very resurrection life that is flowing through Christ. Now, it's important that these living stones aren't just scattered across the building site, isolated from one another. They're put together into a structure. Without the community of faith, without the church, no individual Christian can fulfill his or her purpose. We are called together to be a house together, living stones connected by the Holy Spirit. Why is God making us this new temple, this spiritual house? So that we can be a holy priesthood, Peter says. Okay, so we're stones and now we're priests. Peter says, yes, these are both true. He's not concerned about mixing his metaphors here. He's trying to communicate the fullness, every facet of the beauty of the Christian's identity. And so he switches metaphors here. He turns the kaleidoscope, so to speak, so that his readers, his audience can see all the fullness of the beauty of their identity in Christ. And so Peter shifts this imagery from living stones to a holy priesthood, a community created to offer spiritual sacrifices, which is the main point of these first two verses. Why have we been made living stones in a spiritual house? So that we can offer spiritual sacrifices. Now, these sacrifices are not like the sacrifices that were offered by Aaron and his descendants in the temple. They don't consist of slaughtered animals or grain, 
uh, and drink offerings. They're spiritual sacrifices. They're produced by the Holy Spirit within us, and so they have this common source. But they can take lots of different forms. Uh, Peter's audience was primarily Jewish Christians, and so in the Jewish tradition, there were many things that had been identified as spiritual sacrifices over the centuries of Judaism. Uh, They would have thought of prayer, thanksgiving, repentance, good works, a pure heart, and love. All of these were referred to in their tradition as spiritual sacrifices, and I think these are the kinds of things that, that Peter's thinking of. Ultimately, though, we can understand our spiritual sacrifices as anything that the Spirit produces in us that's pleasing to God, whether it's our words or our works. And so, because these sacrifices originate with God through His Spirit, they're produced by the Spirit, and they're offered through the Son, they're pleasing to the Father. So we see the Trinitarian shape of of what Peter's explaining here. We offer our sacrifices that are produced by the Spirit through the Son to the Father, and He's glad to receive them as Christ presents them on our behalf. And so to summarize these opening verses, we are being built into a spiritual house, and in that spiritual house we serve as a priesthood, offering up our words and our works to God in a way that's pleasing to Him through His Son. We speak and act for His pleasure as we're empowered by His Spirit. As we move on now to the middle three verses of our passage, Peter returns to the idea of the rejection of Christ. And we'll see here that the big idea in these three verses is that honor comes to some and shame comes to others. And the deciding factor of that result is how one treats Christ. Peter begins in verse 6 to explain Isaiah 28 verse 16 which is the first of three Old Testament passages that he uses in this section. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. To understand this passage, we have to understand the importance of a cornerstone. It's the most important stone in the ancient building project because it was the first stone that you laid down And all the other stones were oriented according to it. So if it was off, the whole building would be off. But if it was good and useful, then you would end up with a good and useful building. And so the Lord says that those who join his building project will not be rejected because they're believing in the cornerstone that he has chosen, his very son, Jesus Christ. Now, shame here is not simply uh, social embarrassment, this is the threat that is, that is held out. Those who reject the cornerstone will be shamed, but it's not just social embarrassment. It's everlasting wrath. That's the connotation of that word in the Old Testament. And so with that in mind, Peter takes this promise and centers it on Christ. He's the chosen and precious cornerstone, and faith in him is what delivers a person from God's wrath. And that's the key here, faith. If we were to translate this verse very woodenly, it would read, those believing on him, which I think is a great image for us to uh, think about faith, which is a word we use all the time, um, without every time thinking about all that it means. And so, if we think about believing on Christ, and if Christ is a stone, then the picture is of us stepping out onto him with our full weight, trusting him to hold us up. 
makes me think of the Grand Canyon Skywalk. I don't know if anybody has been to the Grand Canyon or if you did, if you stepped out onto the Skywalk, which is basically this glass platform jutting out from the edge. So you can, you can walk out there and you can look down all 4,000 feet right to the bottom. And man, you have to trust the people who built that built it well enough to hold you and all the other tourists who are out there with you up safely. And so it is with Christ. We entrust our lives to him. We believe on him. We step out upon him in faith. And when we do, we're assured that we'll never experience God's condemnation. Peter applies Isaiah's promise to his audience. God will not reject them. No matter how they're shamed in this life, God the Father will not shame them. And the same is true for us today. I don't know all the ways that you've experienced shame or rejection in your life. Kids, I don't know if you've been bullied at school or excluded from things by your friends, but that happens to adults too. It happens to all of us. We all experience shame and rejection in different ways and different intensities. But one thing I do know because the word of God says so, because Peter is telling us here and now is that God will never put us to shame because we believe in his son. As Peter begins verse 7, he makes the same point with different words. The honor is for you who believe. So honor instead of shame. But this isn't the case for everyone because verse 7 continues, but for those who do not believe. And we can see where Peter's going with this. If those who believe will not be put to shame, then those who do not believe will be put to shame. And Peter turns to two more Old Testament texts to show this. First, Psalm 118, 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In the context of that psalm, The stone was the king of Israel, and the builders were the the nations surrounding Israel that didn't recognize his authority. But now, according to Peter, the builders are all the people, Jew or Gentile, all across the world, who, who think that they can build a structure without Christ. But their choice proves to be a bad one, because Peter goes on in verse 8 to tell us that Jesus has become to them, to those who reject him, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, which is an allusion to Isaiah 8, verse 14. And so Peter's telling us that those who refuse to believe in Christ stumble over him. The stone that they cast aside as useless is now tripping them up. Jesus is also a rock of offense. And offense here is not not an affront to polite sensibilities. It's not the kind of offense that Um, perhaps my grandma might feel if I put my elbows on the dinner table. Offense here means an occasion to sin. And so for those who don't trust in Jesus, he's not a smooth, well-shaped cornerstone. Instead, he's a jagged, rough rock of stumbling and temptation. The temptation to commit what is the greatest sin, to reject him, to not believe in him. And so what Peter's doing in verse 8 is presenting Christ as one who must be dealt with. You must either come to him in faith, accept him, or reject him. And at the end of verse 8, Peter tells us why those who reject him do, do that. Because they disobey the word. The word is none other than the gospel, and to disobey it is to disbelieve it. 
Peter says that those who trip and fall into the temptation of rejecting Jesus have only themselves to blame. It's their disobedience, their lack of faith that earns them the everlasting shame mentioned in verse 6. And yet the apostle goes on to give a second reason for their stumbling. He says they stumble as they were destined to do. The Bible teaches us we know that God is in control of all things, from the hearts and decisions of kings to the roll of dice, even to the eternal fate of all people. And so these people stumble because they do not believe, because they disobey the word, but they disobey the word because of God's eternal decree. And so we must say that God is not culpable for the sin of rejecting Christ. The responsibility for evil falls only at the feet of those who reject him, only at the feet of human beings. And so with Peter, we have to affirm these two statements, even though we can't wrap our minds around how they are both true. We, we must believe them and confess them as we do. The first is that God governs all things according to his holy will. And the second is that God is not the author of sin. Only humans can be held responsible for sin. We might ask at this point, why is Peter bringing up the doctrine of predestination at all? What's the point? Well, for the same reason he brought it up in the second verse of this letter, to comfort his audience. In 1-2, he comforted them by reminding them that despite their earthly circumstances, despite the persecution that they were experiencing, they've been chosen by God for salvation. And now in 2-8, he comforts them by telling them that the wickedness they see around them, perpetrated by those who reject Christ, even that is not outside of God's control. The Lord who loves them is the king over all. To bring this second point to a close, we can see in these middle three verses that Christ's true status is never in question. In God's sight, he is chosen and precious. What is in question is how we will respond to him. Christ is like a huge impassable rock laid across the path of humanity, and as you come to him, you must make a choice. There's no way around. And so you can choose to, to build upon him, to become a living stone in the spiritual house that Peter was talking about, to believe in him, or you can try to continue down the path as if he weren't there. But that second choice results in stumbling and falling into the eternal condemnation of God. But that's not Peter's final word. Even though the results of rejecting Christ are disastrous, he's confident of better things for those to whom he's writing. The apostle begins verse 9 with a wonderful contrast, because unlike the unbelieving rejecters of Christ who are described as stumbling and disobedient, the church receives four positive labels. Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And all four of these is Peter's way of communicating one key truth, that the church is the new Israel. All four of these labels were originally used of God's old covenant people, but now Peter takes them and applies them to the new covenant people, to the church. And so one implication of this status that we have received as the new Israel is seen in the two phrases, a chosen race and a holy nation which initially seems counterintuitive because if you think about who Peter's writing to, he's writing to people who are scattered all across 
Asia. They're not from one race. They're not from one nation. But that's exactly the point. The church is not Israel. It's the new Israel. And so it's not an ethnically homogenous group, as we can clearly see in this room here. The church is the new Israel with members who are Greek and Bithynian and Cappadocian and American and so on. Together we constitute a new race and a new nation, not based on our heritage, but based on our being chosen for new birth unto a living hope. Another implication of the church's status as the new Israel is that we're also a royal priesthood, which is very similar to what Peter's already said in verse 5. There he described us as a holy priesthood and now a royal priesthood. We are in the service of the king of all creation. And again, the language of priesthood means that Christians are not meant to operate as dozens of individual priests isolated from one another, each doing their own tasks separately. Instead, we are to fulfill our purpose that God has called us to as a cohesive group, as the church, as one body united to our head, Jesus Christ. And so with all four of these phrases, Peter is telling his audience that they have a new relationship with God, and because of that, they have a new relationship with one another. But why? Why have they received this new identity? In order to proclaim his excellencies, Peter tells us in verse 9. Now, the word excellencies here is not referring to God's attributes, although those can be described as excellent, of course, but to his saving acts, what God has done for his people in the past, all the wonderful things that we read about in Romans 8 earlier in the service. And he's done all of these things so that the church will proclaim that he's done them. That's our job. And how do we do it? The first is that we proclaim them as we are doing today, this morning and and right now, together in the context of corporate worship, retelling the story of God's redemption of his people, praising him for it with our words, singing together. The second answer is that we proclaim God's excellencies in our daily lives. We not only speak and sing words of gratitude, we live lives of gratitude. We announce the redemption God has accomplished by the way we live. We bear the fruit of righteousness that's in keeping with living in the light, because that's what God has done for us. He's transferred us from the kingdom of darkness, calling us out of darkness into his marvelous light. As sinners, we were born in darkness. We loved the darkness, but not anymore. God has saved us by his powerful word. Just as the Father called life out of lifeless earth and and the Son called Lazarus out of the grave, the Spirit has called us who were dead in our trespasses and sins unto new life in Christ. And the results of his calling are clear. Verse 10 says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This language comes from Hosea 2. In Hosea, Israel is rejected by God because of their sin, and yet the prophet still foretells that God will be merciful to his people. Now, Peter says that prophecy is fulfilled in the church. The churches he was writing to and our churches today are composed of people who once did not belong to God, but who have been made God's people. We didn't deserve this inclusion. In fact, we deserve perpetual exclusion but we have received God's mercy. 
The result of God calling a people out of darkness and into his light is the creation of a chosen and holy nation. And so as members of the church, we do not dwell anymore in darkness. We don't dwell in the shadows. We dwell in God's marvelous radiance. This is the good news of the gospel. So as we come to the end of our time today, how do we boil all of this down? Well, first, Peter has declared the church's distinct identity. God has built us up as living stones in his dwelling place, making us a holy priesthood in that new temple. And God has called us out of darkness to be his precious people and granted us mercy in his Son. The fact that we've received an identity from God is especially great news to us who have been told that it's our job to come up with our own identities. How wonderful it is to be able to stop the ceaseless task of self-creation and to rest in what has been given to us. To stop being your own publicist for a moment and to rejoice in the identity that you have been given in Christ. Friends, for those of you who struggle with your identity, who question who you are, what you're doing here, what you're supposed to do, whether it's um, because you, you, you've lost your job or, or maybe someone you love has, has died or, or moved away, or maybe you're just young and trying to figure out what your life is going to look like, whatever it is, there's one thing that Peter is telling us that is coming through loud and clear, which is that you have a never-changing, shakeless, rooted, stable identity in Christ. And so whatever else you are or aren't, you can know that you always are a living stone and a member of a royal priesthood and part of a holy nation. Perhaps you once felt like you had no identity, and Peter says, in a sense, that's true. You once were not a people, but now you're God's people. You've received mercy. And there's more. The church's special identity comes with a special purpose, a special mission. Who we are affects what we do. And so as a royal priesthood and a holy nation, what do we do? Peter has given us two answers. We offer spiritual sacrifices. And to really boil it down, how do we offer spiritual sacrifices? We do good. The sacrifices we're meant to offer are the good works that the Spirit produces in us. And Peter has given many exhortations already in this letter, and he's going to give more that give us examples of what that looks like. Have sympathy and a tender heart, he says. So when you're confronted with the neediness of your brothers and sisters in the church, don't turn your back, as we read in Proverbs earlier, Proverbs 3. Don't say, tomorrow I'll help, but when you have it right there, you have the ability to help your brothers and sisters in Christ, do it. Love one another. And here's another one, Peter says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Surrender yourself to the Lord and his will. It's a hard thing to do. No matter how he deals with you, whether he builds you up or breaks you down in a season of of discipline, Peter tells you to be humble. Don't demand to know why he's dealing with you in such a way. Rather, confess with Job, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away Blessed be the Lord. This is hard. Doing good is hard. But remember, these are spiritual sacrifices, and we have the Holy Spirit. He is the one producing these works in us. So as we strive for holiness, we know that it's not up to us, up to our own efforts and our own power, but it is the Spirit who is working in us 
to do what is pleasing to God. And so our first purpose then as a priestly community is to offer our works and our words to God as spiritual sacrifices. And our second purpose is very closely connected to proclaim his excellencies. And so as the church, we gather two times each Lord's Day to do this very thing. The scriptures say we give thanks to his name with our lips and we come before his presence with singing. So singing is one way we proclaim God's excellencies. Whether you have a good singing voice or not, God has given you one so that you can shout out praise and thanks to his name. And so we thank God for redeeming us with our words, but we also do it with our works. We live in a way that's fitting for the light. We show our gratitude for God's mercy by offering up the sacrifices that the Spirit is producing in us. Friends, this is our purpose as long as we're on this earth. We don't get up in the morning just to eat and work and relax and then go to sleep and repeat that day after day. Why has God given you life? Why has he called you out of darkness into his marvelous light? Why has he given you new life, Christ's very resurrection life? so that you would glorify him on the earth. The truth is we have a new identity. The king has made us a holy nation and a royal priesthood. So friends, in accordance with this new identity, go out into this week and proclaim his excellencies with your words and with your works, trusting in the spirit that he will produce these sacrifices in you that are offered up through our blessed Lord Jesus Christ to our loving heavenly father. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we confess that we are quick to forget who we are. We forget that we are living stones built upon the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. We forget that we are a holy and royal priesthood in your service. We forget that we've been called out of darkness into your light. We forget that we were once under your condemnation, but now we have received mercy. So help us remember, O Lord. Help us remember who we are and what we're meant to do, to offer to you pleasing spiritual sacrifices, to love you wholly and our neighbors as ourselves. Our purpose is to proclaim your excellencies, worshiping you with one voice for the mighty salvation you accomplished. So help us to do this, O Lord, for your glory. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, our offering tonight